welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. Here we talk about everything healthcare and technology, and I'm your host, James Summeroo. Hey everyone, I've got an excellent episode for you today. Uh, my guest is called Francesca. She's based in Barcelona, and we have a little chat actually about the uh, budding health tech scene in Barcelona. But Francesca has been Chief Digital Officer at pharma company Almoral. She's been the Managing Director of the Global Health Innovation Fund at MSD, another pharma company. At Novartis, she was Global Director of Commercial Strategy for Cell and Gene Therapy. So Francesca's worked across VC, private equity, pharma, and now is the founder of NEN. And NEN helps children with cancer and their families with pain management. And they've got a tech platform to do so. Um, Hope you enjoy this conversation. It's a great one. Francesca is so knowledgeable. She's got so many vantage points or had so many vantage points in healthcare that she now is a founder that truly understands the landscape from a finance point of view, from a pharma point of view, and from a health tech and digital health point of view. So uh, plenty to learn in this one. I hope you guys enjoy it. Francesca, hi. How are you doing? Hi, James. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I'm very well, thank you. Welcome to the Health Tech Podcast. We've already had you on the Health Tech Pigeon Podcast, uh, so it's not the first time we've met, uh, but delighted to have you on this one. You've got a fascinating story. You're helping many kids with uh, lots of different things, but before we get into all of that, whereabouts are you speaking to us from? Whereabouts are you based? So I am based in Barcelona. It's very, very sunny today, as you can see, so I might be moving my way around uh around the the office for the moment but yeah it's uh, i've been living in barcelona now for nearly 10 years in europe for almost 15 now so yeah quite a long time as my accent would would uh, divulge <laughs> absolutely um yeah i do confess i did know the answer to that before i asked it but i just wanted to talk about barcelona for a minute um and hear how glorious the weather is because it is uh not so in the uk as you can imagine in early february um but yeah barcelona the health tech scene um what's that like it's a sort of quiet giant i would say there's a lot of innovation here there has historically been innovation in the biotech space um, very good universities and tech, tech that's coming out of those universities. But over the past, um, I would say at least five years, I've seen a real consolidation of digital health innovation in, in Barcelona. There are two hubs. There's Barcelona Tech, tech City and there's the Barcelona Health Hub. And both are are really growing. You know, there's there's a lot of really interesting stuff here Um I think the companies here tend to be quite scrappy, and so they do a lot with very little. Uh, I, I would put our, us in that in that bucket as well. <laughs> um, yeah, so you know, I I don't know that there's as much visibility or as much of a spotlight on on Barcelona as as maybe it deserves. Mm-hmm. But I think people don't often think of of Barcelona as a as a digital health. Uh, hub in a way that maybe maybe they should yeah it's really interesting i mean I've, I've definitely heard of madrid as a hub and i've seen a lot of events that go on at madrid i know that they with the university as well there's there's stuff going on that like but yeah not really heard about barcelona but uh delighted to know that barcelona is a hub so that i can uh 
expense a couple of plane tickets and a hotel to come out and uh, see what's going on down there, perhaps. Um, <laughs> but yeah. Well, that would be great. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Um, but yeah, Francesca, delighted to have you on. You've got, you've got really interesting background. And I think obviously you, you come at this from the knowledge of a few different vantage points within healthcare more broadly. Um, so it's, it's, it's awesome to see actually you found a company with your background and with a focus on children which I had Dom Raban from Exploro on relatively recently. Um, and we did a, a just did a throwback episode with yeah, him while wonderful. I was off a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. And so the, the sort of pediatric focus in health tech, uh, well, it goes wanting a little bit, doesn't it? It's, it's not, it's certainly not a focus of health tech and actually I'm sure you'll tell me more about yeah. why and, and what you're doing to change that. But before we get into Nen and the company, I think it's useful for our audience to hear about you and your background and the sort of variety that you've had in your career to this point uh, to lead you up to being a founder. So um, do indulge us uh, in a bit of your story. Sure. So, um, you know, as, as you'll, you'll probably find as I, as I share my story, um, I do get bored easily. So I've, I've had a, <laughs> probably seven or so careers during my career. I actually started doing HIV community research at the, at the university level. Um, I did a lot of work educating kids uh, at the time when I was myself a kid about safe sex, about uh, HIV, AIDS, and, and sexually transmitted disease education. That led me to doing work in the clinical trial space right after university. So, um, you know, while I did a lot of this work, much to the chagrin of my parents, you know, I would go with my duffel bag filled with a uh, with uh, various tools and, and preventative measures for, <laughs> for young adults. And, you know, I was, I, I felt that speaking to my peers was a, a better way of, of educating um, kids about the, the risks of, um, of sexually transmitted diseases. And, you know, this was the early nineties, um, you know, about HIV and age, which was really growing um, within that population at the time. So, that eventually brought me to looking into clinical trials for HIV. And um, and I had the great privilege of being hired for a role that I was completely underqualified for managing um, HIV and AIDS clinical trials in a, in a hospital in New York. It was uh, Beth Israel Medical Center. It was one of the largest dedicated HIV um, clinical trial clinics in the U.S. and probably in the world. We were running about 25 studies um, at that time. There were thousands of patients um, within those studies. And it was the very first time where the protease inhibitors were being tested in the clinic. It was fascinating to see, for me to see how transformational these new products were for the patients within our clinic. You know, I worked there for a couple of years. We really got to know these patients. Um, you know, they would start out very, very sick. And after only a few months of, of treatment, you really saw how transformed their lives were. These patients now had a new lease on life. They were starting to rebuild relationships with their families because they had been given more or less a death sentence at that time. They were going back to school. They were going back to work. I was really fascinated by how these drugs were working. 
And so I thought getting a PhD in pharmacology to understand drug design and drug development would be a good way to satisfy that curiosity. So that's exactly what I did. I started my my PhD at, at uh, Weill Cornell's Graduate School of Biomedical Sciences to do HIV research, which I did, and, you know, with the hope to come up with novel therapies for, for patients. Um, I realized very early on that um, my inpatients was not a good fit with academic life. <laughs> and so I went into um, private equity investing uh, into, into biotech. So, you know, trying to find ways to accelerate drug development for those products that were really groundbreaking. Um, and so, you know, we invested in companies. It was with a group called Symphony Capital, where um, we took a, a several assets from either a pharma company or a biotech company, invested in those assets, and then ran the clinical development. So it was essentially a way of de-risking drug development for uh, biotech and pharma companies. And then that company, the originator, had a pre-negotiated buyback at a pre-negotiated um, date and price. And so, um, you know, that taught me a lot in the early days. I started with the fund pretty much from inception. So I helped with everything from fundraising. We eventually raised a $315 million fund to diligencing the products, which is what I was hired to do, and then eventually, you know, negotiating with the um, with the originators and and transacting and and working with the clinical development teams to run those clinical trials. So it was really really interesting in the early days while we were just getting started and before the fund was raised. Uh, some of the partners had been partners at boutique consultancies. Some of their consultancies were bought by IBM. So we we had two sets of cards and two titles. We did management and strategic consulting work in the early days just to keep the lights on. And so depending on which client we went to, we were either one, a consultant or two, the, um, the private equity investors. So <laughs> a tremendous amount of learning for someone coming right out of the lab. Um, you know, I had to learn how to do consulting, learn how to do financial modeling, how pharma works, how biotech works. Um, you know, really, really interesting stuff. So um, really enjoyed that, learned a tremendous amount had my first son and realized, you know, the the pace um, of travel of, as a private equity investor, you know, most of our time was spent uh, traveling and a lot of it in California, uh, which was pretty incompatible with being, um, with being a, a new mom. So I went back to academia, did academic technology transfer, helped do spin outs from the inventions from the scientists at, at Mount Sinai also in New York, where I'm from, uh, born and raised, and then remembered, I think, why I left academia in the first place. It was quite, um, <laughs> it was quite slow. I think um, I was trying to put a lot of focus on, you know, the, the commercial models and the, the commercial validity and go-to-market planning, even from a very early stage, so that we can get the right valuations. And a lot of the focus, because of how the tenure track is structured was on publication and on IP rather yeah. than, you know, on, um, on the commercial validation of a, of a potential invention. 
So um, from there, my husband was also kind of at a crossroads in his career. He had been a consultant with uh, the big four. He had been on Wall Street as, a, as an analyst. We met in the lab. So he also has a background in, uh, in science and a PhD in, in science as well. Um, so we decided to quit both of our jobs and create a boutique consultancy which our families thought we had lost our minds because at this point I was pregnant with our second child. <laughs> and, uh, we, you like we a challenge, clearly. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, easy as for suckers. So <laughs> we, uh, we started this consultancy. <laughs> it was great fun. You know, we had complete flexibility over our, our lives and our, and our projects. And we actually chose projects that we thought we would be able to add value to, which, you know, was, was tricky sometimes, especially in the early days while we were, um, you know, we were still trying to generate clients and um, having to say no to folks uh, because we didn't think it was, it was right for us. We had one client tell us that if we, once we signed that he would own us for the next uh, three months, which seemed like that wasn't going to be a great working relationship, <laughs> despite the money. Um, so we actually said no to that. We also thought they might be doing some things that were a little unsavory, and, and we wanted to mm -hmm. stay as far away from that as possible. So, you know, we we ran that together for um, for about three years, slowly building a client base, um, eventually hiring some folks in to help us out. And basically we did market optimization, portfolio prioritization, helped provide M&A and licensing advisory work, you know, filling out, figuring out where the gaps were within a biotech companies um, or, or pharma companies portfolio. Um, and then, you know, working from there to try to find uh, partners for them out in the marketplace and helping them negotiate with those partners. So that um, will come up later because it brought me to another another um, career, if you will, and another role I had later on. But more immediately at that point, it, we were trying to sell work at the time uh, to Novartis. And um, the team at Novartis said, look, you know, we'd really like to have this expertise in-house. Um, we have a role opened in portfolio management. Would either of you or like to apply? Um, so at the time, we had run the business for about three years. I was now pregnant with our third, um, <laughs> quite pregnant, in fact. And, and so I, I told my husband, why don't you go for this? Mm. I think it's time to take a, a maternity leave because I haven't done that yet. So... <laughs> We were discussing, um, you know, what next. Um, and, and so Mark, my husband, decided to, to go for it, got it. We moved to Basel, um, then with, with three under three. And, and I, after getting the kids settled for a few months, joined Novartis as well. Did a, a few different roles in in Novartis. Um, eventually, got into new products, which was kind of the the innovation group within within Novartis, where we worked on some cell and gene therapy approaches. Eventually, we helped to carve the cell and gene therapy group out of pharma into its own kind of freestanding group because. You know, as we were thinking through how to develop these products, 
it became very clear very fast <laughs> that the current pharma processes just don't apply to cell and gene therapy. So, you know, when I would have conversations with my manufacturing colleagues or our technical operations colleagues, and I would say, okay, see these SOPs, we have to throw them away. They don't apply. They don't apply because this isn't a small molecule. This isn't a biologic. It's a completely different approach to medicine. Um, they put me on this because my thesis work in HIV had actually been in, in cell therapy and how we can leverage oh, nice. cell therapy approaches for, for HIV. So they, uh, they stuck me on these projects. I found them fascinating. I ended up bringing in, you know, with the BD team, three new assets into the cell and gene uh, therapy portfolio. And then, you know, again, we kind of carved this out to its own separate entity. Um, and made sure that the manufacturing was established. Novartis bought um, some former manufacturing facilities from another com company uh, in New Jersey. And so, you know, it's, it's a really interesting model where each individual product is produced specifically and, and bespoke for a particular patient. So that logistics line of, of transfer from the donor patient, the modifications of the cells, and then back into that donor patient were, um, were obviously very different than, uh, than a traditional pharmaceutical manufacturing or, or logistics process. So really interesting stuff. While we were there, we had spoken about, um, you know, moving to Spain and it was for personal reasons. You know, we really loved Spain. My family's from uh, Barcelona originally. Um, and one, one day on, on a holiday together, we, uh, we were having a conversation and we said, look, you know, either we do it now and move to Spain straight away or we wait until the kids are out of university because it would be a lot of new languages for them. You know, in Barcelona, of course, they speak Spanish and Catalan. Mm. And um, the schools that we started looking into were mostly trilingual, so uh, which is what where they eventually went. Um, so we decided, nope, let's do it now. And so we gave our, took out spreadsheets, which is a very unromantic thing to do on your anniversary holiday, but we did, and started kind of mapping out, you know, what it would take to get us to Barcelona that year. We did it. I took a job as um, heading strategy for a pharma company based in Barcelona called Almeral. I was part of the corporate development group because they had sold much of their uh, their pharmaceutical business, their respiratory business to AstraZeneca, and they were kind of rebranding as a, as a dermatology specialty pharma company without a lot of dermatology assets. So I was brought on to kind of decide where and how and with whom, you know, should we partner, collaborate, or, or acquire. I did that for about a year when someone from Merck called uh, we had back when um, my husband and I were consultants, we had done a project for Merck doing a portfolio prioritization of their whole oncology um, portfolio. So they called from Merck and they said, hey, you know, we have this role in our corporate venture fund for someone to lead from from Europe. Might you be interested? They were already kind of familiar with um, with how how I worked. And they said, you know, you had some previous um, investment experience in private equity. This is in digital health. Would you be interested? I said, maybe, but I don't have any experience in digital health. I've worked on a few projects at Novartis, but nothing 
nothing, you know, really meaningful. They said, don't worry, you know, we'll, once you get here, we'll show you the ropes. So I got it and I was, um, and it was with Merck's Global Health Innovation Fund. I was leading European investments for the fund, learning about digital health, really, really got the digital health bug. Um, as is probably clear by now, I like working on the stuff that's cutting edge and that's new and different and that can really impact patients and can have um, greater access, can provide greater access to, to patients. And I thought, wow, you know, digital health can really help democratize medicine in a way that almost nothing else has has done to date. So my first year was kind of landscaping the whole the whole um, European market, trying to find where um, what niche could be applicable for the fund based on their investment thesis and based on what's out there in Europe. Um, yeah, and then we we started in investing um, investing in Europe at the at the time. Part of my focus was on software enabled clinical trial solutions. So, how do we bring more efficiency to the clinical trial space? And digitize some of those processes, um, looking into things like, you know, hybrid clinical trial models and patient recruitment models and patient engagement models and, you know, um, kind of covering the gamut of that, um, that software enabled space. So really interesting stuff, an amazing team, um, still in, in contact with, with those guys. Um, but definitely entrenched my interest in uh, and passion for digital health. Then Almiral called me back one day and they said, hey, we have, um, we have this digital board. We're trying to implement some digital health solutions. Would you, would you serve on this board? I said, sure, you know, happy to. I, I knew all the, I knew all the folks because I had worked there. Um, what I, was probably too naive to realize at the time was that that was my interview for the chief digital officer role, which they then offered to me after being on the board for a little while. So um, took that role, helped them transform, um, you know, into a, a more digitally enabled organization. We um, we created what we called the digital garden which was um, an accelerator for companies that um, that could either speed the pharma processes, so things, again, like the software-enabled clinical trial management solutions, or that had a direct um, relationship to dermatology and, and helping patients with uh, dermatological conditions, because that was the, the therapeutic focus for the company. So this digital garden, we ended up incubating or partnering with about 27 um, digital health companies across two years. So we were quite active in the space in a, in a short amount of time. Did a lot of work also with the Barcelona Health Hub that's based here in Barcelona. That's where the, our physical acceleration spot was, uh, was housed. Then, of course, COVID hit and, and a lot of that became um, a bit more decentralized. But like many chief digital officers, the uh, the life expectancy is about three years, <laughs> and mine was <laughs> almost exactly that to the date. You know, and and around six months or so before, I realized, you know, as as much as it was really fun and very challenging to operationalize digital health within a pharmaceutical company. 
what I wanted to do was have more interaction with patients. So how can we really help patients move the needle in a, in a meaningful way? You know, and as you may know, in pharma, it's very difficult to have direct access to patients because of compliance rules that are completely necessary within the pharmaceutical environment, but that that are are hard to maneuver when you're thinking about um, a truly patient-facing solution. So when I was kind of scratching my head and thinking, what next? I knew I wanted to do something that could impact in, impact patient care and patient outcomes meaningfully. And so I put my consulting hat back on. I did a scan of the whole of the digital health landscape, essentially a gap analysis to see where are their gaps and can those gaps be filled with a digital solution or service, particularly with a digital therapeutic, because I think there's a lot of promise there. Um, you know, this was the summer of 21. So, you know, a lot of the hiccups, if you will, hadn't yet hiccuped. So, you know, there's a a tremendous amount of optimism in the space. I think there still should be. So uh, when I did this, this gap analysis, I was really shocked and disappointed by how few solutions exist for, for kids. And when I scratched the surface a little bit more, um, we had worked on a, on an adult solution for pain in back when when I was in Alamoral, we were looking into to doing that, and I saw how readily you can translate cognitive behavioral therapy or behavioral techniques to a platform with really good um, really good outcomes. And when I I looked to the pediatric um, space, the WHO has said that there are about twenty five percent of kids worldwide suffer from pain. Pain is described as more than three months of pain over a year, which is tremendous to me. It was just not something that I had previously contemplated. That's 400 million kids. You know, that's an enormous market and an enormous number of kids that are that are suffering. And so I started looking into digital solutions really with an eye to how can we get to all these 400 million kids, not just kids who can afford to pay, and found that you know there were there were many solutions that help kids with hospital related anxiety, like Exploro, who you who you mentioned, or with procedural pain. But there were fewer or none actually that we found that are really focused on the neurobehavioral changes that are required to manage the psychological aspects of pain. So that was kind of the the genesis of NEN. Um, You know, we decided to, I talked to a lot of experts in the field. I talked to a lot of physicians, a lot of parents, and asked them specifically about their child's journey with pain. We decided to focus first on pain in pediatric cancer because from, you know, we, we knew we'd be a very small company and from a bandwidth perspective, uh, it was easier for us to get to those top academic centers that tend to treat kids with cancer. And then we can kind of spread from there. The platform was built, however, with pain in mind, not specifically pain in cancer, because pain is pain is pain. Um, so the platform can be applied to, um, to helping kids with pain, regardless of whether they have cancer or IBD or migraine 
or congenital malformalities or orthopedic conditions or burn. So these are all different etiologies that, that cause pain in kids. So, you know, when we think about cancer, half a million kids worldwide are suffering from, from cancer and nearly all of them experience pain through their journey. So these kids are also at really high risk of medical trauma because of the, the medical treatment that they're that they're receiving. And these, these negative pain memories can be quite sticky and can persist through survivorship and into adulthood. So as adults, you know, they're confronted with much higher levels of anxiety and depression. So mental health is about, you know, there's about a 50% increment in, um, in, in mental health or, or rather 50% of, of childhood survivors of, of cancer suffer from mental health as adults. But there's also a really high preponderance of these adults that have idiopathic chronic pain. And the chronic pain isn't caused by any physical reason. It's just that the psychological aspects of pain mm -hmm. haven't been appropriately managed. So, yep. you know, tackling those psychological aspects of pain is not a nice to have. It's, it's a real necessity and too few solutions exist for kids. Um, mm -hmm. And there's also too few practitioners. So, you know, the pain psychologist or pediatric psychologist as a, as a field is already quite narrow. Currently across the U.S., I've heard in particular, residency programs are having a really hard time filling the pediatric uh, psychology residency slots. So there are, there are too few of them. There are fewer young physicians that are, and, and practitioners that are interested in getting into that space. So what results is a real access problem. You know, kids mm. across the U.S. and Europe and, and the U.K. have to wait about 6 to 12 months before they can get in front of a, of a psychologist. In hospital, typically they'll see a psychologist once, um, maybe twice. They're, the kids are triaged based on pre-existing mental health conditions and not whether or not they would um, respond well to psychological approaches for, for pain. We know CBT works. Um, you know, it's just most kids don't have access to it. And so we're just looking to democratize that pain management at scale. So what we're offering is, um, is a solution that kids can, can use that leverages play. So they, it's gamified cognitive behavioral therapy and behavioral techniques. And through play, they can learn some of the coping skills that will allow them to to better manage um, their pain over time. Beautiful story. Thank you, Francesca. You've sort of done my job for me. You've answered all my questions. We can sort of end the podcast here if you want, but um, <laughs> I will I will ask you a few questions. Um, no, I'm kidding. Of like, course. It's, it's, it's a great story. And it's funny, the thing I wrote down was... You, your story ob obviously contains a lot of different moves. It contains everything that you would need, I guess, to become a very informed founder of a company bar going through something like that yourself as either a patient or a parent, I guess, which you actually may have done. But there's so much that makes up this story, but it starts with HIV community research. And there's something about that that I think is really interesting, given that where you started and where you ended and everything that you went through, because I think there are so many people 
that are trying to forge a career in either digital health or pharma or healthcare more broadly, that they see pr- private equity as the end goal. All roads lead to private equity is a joke I've got amongst some of the, you know, my friends and colleagues that, you know, <laughs> when you follow the money long enough, you eventually get to private equity and that's sort of where everything stops or finishes or that's the pinnacle. And, you, you know, whether you put VC in that category as well as in investing more broadly and all the rest of it, but people often kind of plot that for their career. But it's interesting to me that yours went sort of up there and then through it again and almost back round in in what is a more circular journey back to the sort of coalface and the ground floor and patience. And I think that's really interesting because when people ask me, I get LinkedIn DM'd every single week with words to the effect of, I want to get into health tech. How do I do it? Can you help me? Something along those lines. And there is no single answer to that other than follow your interest and do the work. You've proved it. It's a big circle. Right there, you've literally just proved my entire point. It's a big circle. It doesn't matter at what point of that circle you actually go in, but go in and then do the work and go around the circle and find the bit that you want to stick in, or just keep going around the circle and accumulating the knowledge and the skills and the behaviors that are going to lead to the next thing anyway. But what's interesting, what what I wanted to ask you about is, or maybe it's a comment or a question, let's see how this ends up, but starting with HIV community research means that you're connected to the real ground floor with patience and seeing impact, I guess. And I think that is a bit of a privilege in a way, because it's where I started on the ground floor of being a junior doctor as a first year junior doctor and a medical student. Like you're you're part of it. And I think it's a privilege in a way because for me anyway, and I guess my question is, is it the same for you, that that never left me. And actually what I see in your journey is that kind of purpose of ultimately this has to benefit a patient it sort of stuck with you in in a lot of these moves actually with the way that you explained your role and what you were trying to achieve that it seems to have never left you but actually that initial purpose of the ground floor it almost seems like you've gone all the way around and and just gone hey I actually need to just get back to that which I think is a privilege because we know having worked there, that's the most fulfilling bit. And actually that's the bit that we sort of want to get back to it. you know, for me at some point and in some way, but you've obviously done that in what you're doing with the health tech startup now, but I don't know, can you comment on that journey for me, I guess? And, and what, what, what the patient means to you in, I guess, that journey and where you are now. It's a really interesting comment because I think for me, all the red line or the red thread through every career move mm. I've made has been, you know, how do we do something or leverage information or, you know, when I was a consultant, leveraging data to get the right treatments to the right patient. And even in private equity, it was, you know, can we put money behind a novel therapeutic that can benefit patients. Uh, In pharma, Mm. it was, you know, let's see if we can think of different modalities of care to get to patients. Um, You know, how can what a startup's doing integrate into a pharmaceutical company to improve access to patients? So Mm. I, I think that that initial experience dealing with, with patients was super transformative for me. 
Um, and it was an honor and a privilege to see how their lives changed with a pharmaceutical agent, you know, or with a novel, a novel approach to, to medicine. And that it was in part that intellectual curiosity at, that eventually drew me to science, um, but also that understanding of the impact that that could have to a patient and to a family, not just the particular patient you're treating, but to that, that whole, you know, their whole world. And I think that's very humbling to, to recognize mm-hmm. that, you know, something, however little, could have a really big impact on, on many people's lives. And so that was motivating to me mm-hmm. to, to look for that, um, you know, across each, each aspect of, of, of what I was doing. I think if I was working, you know, with, you know, not to disparage anyone who wants to to go this route, but if I was working with something that was a little bit more, uh, you know, s- superficial or um, or or not as meaningful, I wouldn't yeah, yeah, yeah. be able to find the same level of of meaning in in my own life. I think that's the thing. That's the bit that that I, I guess I, that I was getting at with the with the the priv- the word privilege. I, I think it's a privilege to be shown here is somewhere where you can put your effort and your struggle that delivers meaning back to you. I think because you're right, I see this in some of my friends in other sectors that they even talk about it, that that's what they lack. And I think that's the the, the advantage that we have in healthcare broadly. But actually, you know, for these people that are messaging me asking like, how do I get into health tech? I almost think like get, getting something on the ground floor to show you where does this all actually need to lead will give you the fire behind you. And then when you try and fix the system, all roads lead to private equity as well. <laughs> all roads lead, you know, you end up on that path of like <laughs> going down that road and going like, oh, what about operations and money and marketing and all these things? Then eventually you get to like, who's just got the most money? That's who can solve the problem. But yeah, getting that fire from actually seeing where do you want all this to end up? What actual thing do you want to happen? And now how do you do that? And that's how you end up getting down towards investment and all the rest of it. But the next question I wanted to ask you actually was around this because you see the ecosystem incredibly well. Even in you explaining your career journey there, I actually begin to understand a little bit more how pharma even fits into digital health. And that's sort of a two-way street because pharma is also trying to digitize. So it itself is trying to become digital, but it can also affect digital health more broadly as a buyer, as a funder, as a as, a, as an acquirer, etc., customer, all the rest of it. So I'm interested in how do you see the role of pharma and what is the role of pharma in digital health? So let's say there are people listening that have got ideas for health tech, whether that's software, whether that's devices, whether it's whatever, right? And we know sort of conceptually, oh, we could get funded by pharma with their corporate venture wing we could our pharma could buy this pharma could use the data pharma could use this in clinical trial there, there are all these things that are sort of a bit nebulous of like uh some i'll build something and at some point pharma's going to come along and give me a load of money and and it, it will be a big success or make a load of impact 
Can you add some flesh on the bones there for me of like, what, what, what do you actually observe? You've been a chief digital officer. You've, you've seen it from that side. You've also helped buy and fund and acquire and all those things. So what is pharma doing in digital? What pharma, take pharma and digital health. How do you put the two together? What's going on? A, a few things, because um, it's a, a wide open question. That is um, quite a horrible question, I, I accept. Pharma's going to have to do a lot. I think what we've seen post-COVID after, you know, the the bubble that that burst a bit around digital health is that pharma's pulled back. The, the pharma selling model is very different than a digital health selling model. That's not to say that they're mutually exclusive. Um, and we'll see what happens with the pharma selling model, you know, over the next five, 10 years, because mm-hmm. that will have to evolve as well because the health systems won't support the current model. So, so that's on the one side. On the other side, you know, from a digital health founder perspective, the, the piece of advice that I would give to all of our partners and all of the companies that I was looking at either as an investor or as someone who was trying to operationalize digital health within pharma is make sure you're not just delivering cool tech. Make sure that what you're doing is solving for a problem that's keeping someone up at night. If what you have is additive and it's a nice to have, you're not likely to have the same level of success versus a company that's really solving for a huge pain point within within pharma. So, you know, from our perspective at NEN, we're not sure yet how we'll fit in to the pharma world. I think we can offer a solution to kids. Kids have not been historically a huge area of research for pharmaceutical companies. So when we're for us, we just don't know if, if we fit into the, the pharma model. We're exploring it and we're having a number of discussions, actually three of which happened this morning. Um, so, you know, th- that, that might still happen. But I think what's important for entrepreneurs and founders and and folks within startups to keep in mind with digital health is make sure that you're adding value in a way that's more than just incremental. You know what, and 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 make sure that you have champions woven throughout the organization because what happens very often and part of why I think. Um, digital health hasn't had as strong a hold on pharma as I think they should have had is because particularly within the the commercial parts of the organization, there's a lot of turnover. So if your champion is someone who's going to leave in three, six, 12 months before the deal is executed or while the deal is being executed, it's not likely to stick and those recurrent mm. contracts are what are lacking within the pharma space. So as an example, you know, we've been in discussions with um, with two companies. We, for one for many, many months, one for less time for a few weeks, I got a note from both of them <laughs> early this month um, saying, hey, happy new year, just so you know, so-and-so is going to be taking over these discussions. So, you know, then you kind of have to start over again. So make sure that your champions are spread and that they're entrenched to the extent you can convince management 
that your solution is going to help solve for one of their pain mm-hmm. points, that's great. I think if you're working with the teams on the ground, however convinced they are, um, it's less likely to to come to fruition. Or at least if, even if you get to the first contract, very often those contracts are not um, are not renewed because there's a different group that wants to put their own unique stamp on on their work. So, you know, it's it's tricky. I think once we start seeing more meaningful reimbursement within the digital health space, pharma is going to start taking note of that, and um, and it's going to become a model that's more familiar to them. That's really good. It's really nice practical advice. Um, when you founded NEN, you did a gap analysis, you said. You're coming at this from a very consultant mindset of doing things right and getting all your ducks in a row and ensuring it's the you know the market's the right size, etc. Now, you chose pediatrics, you chose pain, you chose software. There are these sort of decisions that you made that then place you in the gap that you found, I guess. How much of that decision were you thinking about the commercialization of it, i.e. very practically who's going to buy it, how are they going to buy it, how much can they buy it for, what pot of money are they going to get it out of? And if you were thinking in those terms, how much did that affect the product and the company and how much are you sort of trying to put your vision into the product and the company to sort of shoehorn into those pots of money, if you know what I mean? How does one affect the other there in the founding of this? In thinking through this as a, as, as a, a, a basis for starting a company, the most impactful conversations I had were with families. And as a mother of yeah. three boys, I could immediately think, you know, just a fraction of what they must have been going through at that time. And to imagine as a family that we would have to be managing our child's pain um, without much help from hospitals, not because they don't want to, just because of the resource constraints Mm. um, that, you know, when, when speaking to these families, most of them said that apart within the cancer space, apart from the initial diagnosis of cancer, which is obviously devastating for the family, managing their pain through the journey is the second hardest thing for them to do. So for me, that thinking through what that means made it much more of a driving force for me to be able to put something in the hands of those families that that could work and that could help them. You know, recognizing that in order to get the clinical validation work, we have to get venture capital investing investment. So it has, the business model has to be venture capital investable Mm -hmm. um, in order to get to our main goal, which is democratizing pain management at scale. So from the very beginning, we have a, a view and a, and a mission-driven approach to be a, a profit-per-purpose company. So the goal is we will eventually create two parts of the organization. Then, 
and the NEN Foundation. The NEN Foundation won't be reliant on on revenue. It'll be funded by NGOs and grassroots organizations. Mm. We've already started working with, with UNICEF to see how we can do that because there are places in the world that are even more underserved than the markets that we're going after initially. So, you know, we just launched the product. We're super excited about it. We've launched it in the US, UK, and Spain. But there are many other places, and we're planning on other launches throughout Europe over the coming months, but there are many other places throughout the world where being in front of a pediatric psychologist, even less one that's trained in pain management, is not a reality. So we want to make sure that we can get men to them and at least give them that support, um, you know, we're treating kids wherever they are. So in thinking through how do we do both and how do we do both at once and, and how do we be very transparent and open with potential investors that this isn't, you know, some nice to have or a nice press release. This is the core of our business and they have to be on board with that if they're going to be on board with us. So, you know, even though the NEN Foundation hasn't been formed yet, uh, because we need to do the clinical validation work first, um, that comes up in the very first conversation because it's important that they understand that's the that's the trajectory of the of the company. So in order to have um, a company that is venture capital investable, you know, what we thought after many, many, many conversations with experts, with hospitals, with parents, with um, with physicians, is we have three revenue streams and three verticals within our company. We have the D2C, so direct to parents, which is where we launch now. And, and you know, if I could just pause on that for a second, our plan was not to go direct to parents as early as we have. We've only founded the company two years ago. But we did so because parents asked us to. They said, can you please get us something now? Um, so what we have is kind of a light version of what we're hoping to have um, to get something into the hands of those families that asked us to. So, you know, we're looking at um, at selling directly, you know, on the Apple Store and, uh, and Google Play to those families who could potentially benefit and, and for whom NEN could potentially help their kids. The next is um, B2B, so direct to hospitals. We are, uh, we've established several research collaborations. We're planning to do our clinical validation studies. Um, Stanford um, said that they would be interested in leading that study for us. Um, and, you know, what we're finding is we have these clinical conversations with providers because the platform is very, very much science-based. Um, the content has been created by our clinical team. We have a Grace, who's a pediatric pain psychologist who practices at MD Anderson in Texas. We have Bethany Rains, who's a cognitive neuroscientist who used to run the digital health, mental health innovation at, uh, at Optum Labs in the U.S. She's based in Minneapolis. Um, you know, the, the content is based on what works in the clinic and also what is shown to be more most effective from the, the clinical literature. So the, the platform's very scientifically driven. However, as a scientist, I want to see the data. So we want to make sure that we are doing these, these research collaborations to get the clinical validation done. As we're having these conversations, the folks that we're working with um, and talking to 
are the stakeholders who see these kids. They're the pain psychologists. They're the anesthesiologist, pediatric anesthesiology teams. They understand how much pain these kids are in. And they also understand that, that behavioral techniques and psychological interventions do work for these kids. So they're asking, hey, can we do enterprise-wide agreements um, with NEN to provide NEN to all the kids within our hospitals? So that came from them. We weren't planning on that as a, as a potential revenue stream. But yes, you know, that's something that we're looking into now and we're, we're hoping to do over, over this year. And then the, the last bucket, if you will, is to be once we've gone through all the clinical validation, we've submitted to regulators to get in the U.S. FDA clearance as software as a medical device, and then across Europe as a, as a medical device. Um, our goal is to be a prescribed and reimbursed platform. Prescribed by whom, you know, we'll have to see because in the U.S., the, the practitioners, which tend to be psychologists and child life specialists, don't have prescribing capabilities. So, you know, we'll have to figure out what that means. But the idea is that it would be recommended by a physician and then covered under under insurance. So those are kind of that's the the stepwise approach that that we're taking for the moment, though, we're launching direct to to parents so that um, that they can purchase then um, for their for their family. That's really interesting. What I love about that, obviously, is the clinical stuff. The, the as a obviously clinician scientist myself, hearing that of a founder is really interesting. Do you think that clips your wings at all compared to other people? Being being a scientist and the founder, and your requirement for, I suppose, data to not only go into the product, but even in things like marketing and the way that you explain the product and the claims that you have around it. Do you think that your scientific nature is 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 a an overall positive, or are there are there any sort of negatives? Do you, do you think? Because I hear this, I hear this on both sides. Yeah, so it's interesting because it depends on on who you speak to. So we've spoken to some investors who have said, "Look, DTX scares us. We don't want to go there." Mm. And I said, "That's fine." We also have other avenues. So you know, we are selling direct to, to parents. Unfortunately, due to the nature of the condition, there is a willingness to pay. We've tried to be very cognizant about not overburdening families. So you know, we've tried to make proxies to how much you know, an in-person session could potentially cost. Um, we also have a, a buy one, share one model. So for every um, su- subscription of NEN that's purchased, we'll allocate another one for another child whose family may not have the ability to pay. That's, and that's really again, nice. really important to us, even from the beginning. So uh, sort of a, a Tom Shoe model of digital health, if you will. Um, <laughs> So, you know, I, I think to your question, yes and no. You know, there are skeptics, particularly because of what we've seen over the past year or two, or, you know, in the, in the broader digital therapeutics world that, um, that want to stay away from anything that's, that's digital, mm. um, that's a, a DTX. We're right now an evidence-based solution. So we are built on scientific evidence. We don't make claims on our product and we won't until we have done that clinical validation. Mm. Um, but, you know, we know that behavioral techniques have in, you know, in the clinic have had a, a meaningful impact yeah. on the child's ability to manage their pain. So, you know, 
we're we're a little bit talking out of both sides of our mouths because mm. we can appeal to those that are um, are more scientifically leaning and and base and we'll look to that clinical evidence. Certainly, the hospitals are are in that camp, um, but we're also able to give something to the families now. Yeah, um, you know, albeit a, a lighter version. Yeah, it's fascinating. This reminds me of something that came up at one of YouTube's events. I went to one of the events down at Google that Michelle did, and they had this great presentation where they talked about evidence versus anecdotes. And of course, as the owners of empty pipes through which all health content can go down, they have some responsibility as to what appears or what the algorithm prefers or what gets shown to more people, etc. The point is, though, that they have to make a decision on what's more valid or what's valid, I guess. And their argument was that when it comes to storytelling and when it comes to an individual feeling benefit from information, an anecdote can matter. A personal story can matter. And I think as scientists and people that are craving that, uh, that meta-analysis ultimately before we can feel secure about something we can actually forget that anecdotally something is actually working and actually where you for example have built a product through which there are families there are parents there are children that are feeling benefit that are experiencing their child becoming pain-free or going along the route to becoming pain-free we shouldn't have to necessarily wait and i think that's where the interesting bit there for me comes between there's always been a question around digital health and what evidence do we need what evidence should we have and i think where the direct-to-consumer model becomes extremely powerful and it comes with negatives because again it falls to the people who can afford it in inverted commas and there's arguments around digital poverty and all the rest of it but where there are people that are willing to put their hand in a pocket and pay for something to generate that evidence for other people, we can't ignore it. We have to, of course, look at it in that context and go, well, we can't leave it there because ultimately then it is going to cause a divide. It is going to be only available to those that can afford it. But even I like the fact that you're caveating that with you've got a buy one, share one policy, even when it comes to that. So actually that fights against that and we're generating a data set not only from uh one group but a clear and different other group too that you're getting that data in in that model which i think again is incredibly interesting in order to generate that evidence but yeah it's never left me that the anecdotes are extremely powerful the stories behind those things are extremely powerful and, and actually you know you as a company taking that responsibility head on i love that well, thanks. Yeah, you know, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't an easy decision because um, you know, as a scientist, I'm trained to to look to the data and then make a decision. And and it was this these discussions with parents when they were like, "No, can you just get this to us?" Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, well, you know, we want to do this clinical validation," and they're like get this to us. <laughs> and that, um, you know, <laughs> the, the urgency um, of their pleas, you know, really 
struck a chord in me. And mm. then, you know, the, the, the mom in me thought about, no, we need to get this to them. You know, we, we will, we have on our, our roadmap a way to do all the things we think are necessary, yeah. but there's also a way to get them a version of, of what we're creating as quickly as we can. Um, you know, one thing that's been important to us from the very beginning is having input from physicians, but also from parents and kids. And we've incorporated their feedback in the the co-design and the co-creation from the very beginning. In fact, the first parent group that we formally established was, um, you know, a month after we started the the company and and the research collaboration with um, San Juan de Deo in, in Barcelona happened very, very quickly you know, we, we love hearing from the parents and from the kids, you know, kids are wonderfully unfiltered. So they'll tell you exactly what they think along each iteration of the, of the product. And that's really helpful to us in, in developing it. You know, we had, um, we had a session this summer where we were showing them the kind of near final version of the, of the platform and, and the kids take it really seriously. So there's this one little girl that I was kind of interrupting her as she was going through. And I was like, well, you know, what do you think about this? And she looked at me and she gave me, she gave me the hands and she said, I'm working. <laughs> she, she was very clear about, about, you know, she had an important job to do. And, and we prefaced it by, look, you know, your responses to this platform will help other kids. Mm. Um, you may not be in pain anymore. These were kids with cancer and who were at different stages of their, of their treatment journey. Um, but if you are in the future, remember some of the things you're learning. But also, if you're not, that's great. You know, we hope that you're not in, in pain in, in the future. But your think back to when you were and the work that um, and the outputs of this will help us help other kids, um, you know, when when they're in a similar situation. So they take their jobs very, very seriously. We had one little boy um, who was about 10. So right now the platform's designed for kids 7 to 12. He was about 10 and he saw four little dots on the top of one screen. And as, as he looked at it, he goes, oh, super dramatically. We said, what's the matter? He's like, this is going to mean I'm going to have to read a lot because he recognized <laughs> in other apps that he's been in. <laughs> those little dots means that he has a bunch of oh, such good unfiltered feedback. Isn't it? It's so glorious. <laughs> amazing. Amazing. You know, and um, and so, you know, what we would do, we would either have the tech team directly involved and we would, of course, ask permission from the parents and we would record some of these so that they would see the unfiltered responses that the that these kids were having so we would have you know a kind of camera on the child and then we could see what they were doing at each point and even you know when they were kind of stumbling stumbling or or you know they weren't sure if they were supposed to click or scroll you know these were all the inputs that that we captured um and that were integrated into the platform i mean even our virtual companions we have three um we have dolores who manages uh pain management but then we also recognize that anxiety and depression are very much intertwined with a child's perception of their own pain. So we wanted to also focus on, on mental health. So, you know, we, we have Sarah and Tony who are focused on the serotonergic receptor pathways. So Sarah mediates anxiety, 
related techniques and toning depression, but in a way that that's pretty light for the kids. So when we ask the kids, Hey, you know, what's, what's Sarah's deal? And they're like, well, Sarah seems like a little worried and Tony seems a little sad. So we're not explicitly calling out anxiety and depression, but we're giving them coping skills that they can apply when they mm-hmm. feel similarly to, to these three virtual companions. It was really important that the kids, that these companions created um, a relationship where, where there was empathy involved. And so because of that, you know, there were a few considerations we had to take with, with the kids. First of all, the kids chose the characters. We had um, a child, um, a children's book illustrator who's done some work in, in gaming, create five choices for the kids. Um, my favorite were these little monsters that I thought were amazing, but the kids unanimously across age ranges and across geographies and cultures chose these like fairy creatures that are now what we have on, on the platform. And what's great about them is that they're not human-like. So they're green, purple, and orange, <laughs> or blue and orange. So they don't, um, they don't have any of the biases of gender, of ethnicity, of color, of oh, wow. culture. And the kids can really relate to them because um, if you only have three, you're never going to capture the likeness of every child in those characters. They also told us, which I thought was hysterical and made all the parents, um, including myself, roll their eyes. The kids insisted that their voices be teenagers because they said multiple kids told us because teenagers know stuff. And all the adults <laughs> in the room were like, God. <laughs> <laughs> um, so there, they are teenagers' voices, um, but you know the kids argue amongst themselves if um, Dolores is a girl or a boy, or if if mm. Tony and their names are all spelled kind of funny so that they can be up for interpretation. Um, you know, and and that that's also really important to us that that it's inclusive and. Um, and that the kids can just relate to them without, you know, any sort of mental gymnastics. Mm. The thought that has to go into a product in pediatrics, I can remember from speaking to Dom, it's specific. It's a lot of user testing. It's yeah. a lot of uh, advisory boards made up of people no older than 13 years old. Um, and <laughs> it's it's fast and unfettered response to feedback i guess and actually building all that stuff in but it's important because i suppose you know with you thinking about as you say venture capital money requires a venture capital sized exit it requires a market size that 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 leads to that it requires sales to that degree but ultimately it requires users to that degree. You need to hit daily active users. The product needs to be as sticky as possible. And like we've said on this podcast a, a thousand times, and we'll say it again, you can solve the problem, but you need to bring joy. If you can do that on, if you can solve the problem and yeah. bring joy, you will create an incredibly sticky product. The beauty of which in pediatrics is that the kids are going to be very honest with you, aren't they? Which is what they have been there about exactly what is going to bring them joy, and exactly they go, they they are they are not going to filter that behind what they think you want to hear. They are just going to tell you what they think, which I think is wonderful. Um, but yeah, obviously, I, I I do just want to touch on that before before the end. So 
with what you're looking to achieve here with that kind of broad appeal and making the product as sticky as possible and kids love it you must be thinking global for this so in terms of you thinking where this goes from here you've got you've had the well, you, the launch very recently so maybe start there what have you launched exactly who have you launched it to and how how do those people get it let's start there and then where does this go? I was going to say end, but no. Where does this go yeah. for you beyond that? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of the stickiness, we're we're very much aware that we're competing with Fortnite, maybe not with the really littles, but Peppa Pig there <laughs> and, you know, Fruit Ninja and everything else. So it does have to be fun and there does need to be um, an element of of joy. And if we're, what we're looking to do is to leverage play, then it's got to be fun. Mm. So we've been really lucky um, that we partnered with Frog Design from the very beginning. Kiara Diana, who's um, the, the head of design at Frog, is one of our advisors. Um, she's been involved from the very beginning. And, and they have been so passionately dedicated to making something that looks amazing for kids. Um, and so, you know, that, that UX UI, apart from getting the feedback from the kids, of course, that has been a really important piece that, that we've spent a lot of resources on because we recognize how important it is with regarding, you know, what we've launched. So we've launched the, this, this lighter version of the product in the U S UK and Spain, it's available for download on the Apple Store, on Google Play, um, you know, with this buy one, share one model. You know, we kind of take care of that on the back end. So as as, um, as subscriptions come in, they're kind of earmarked to this, this other part of our business um, where we can share it either through foundations or through hospitals or to kids that reach out um, on our on our website. And, you know, the goal there is to really make sure that um, that we can eventually get it to kids all over the world. Our tech team is amazing, and they've come up with this really quick way um, to make sure that we can we can get the platform ready in other languages as quickly as possible. And it was built with that in mind. Mm. Um, it's a lot easier to build it and make it more complicated in the beginning than have something that's completely ready and then have to kind of redo it, you know, in terms of, of languages. So we have, um, we use a lot of AI technology. So, you know, even something as basic as our scripts, if you will, although I'm sure our clinical team won't be happy that I'm calling them scripts, but <laughs> our, our behavioral technique um, skills <laughs> are written initially in English. We then put them through ChatGPT in the voice of a 10-year-old. So something like, you know, this um, skill will give you the requisite coping skills so that you can manage X, Y, or Z comes back to, we're going to teach you stuff that'll help you, which is mm. obviously much more palatable for a child to understand. Then we take that, put it through um, another technology that we've licensed, actually, that uh, that translates that into I think it's like 163 yeah, different nice. languages, and then we do text to voice. So all of our characters, we don't have to have someone in a sound booth recording. Although the initial um, 
the initial inspiration for that was watching um, a Frozen video of how Let It Go was recorded in like 38 languages. They just show different people sitting in different sound booths across the <laughs> world re-recording it. That was initially <laughs> what we thought we would have to do. But now we do everything, um, you know, text to voice and we can choose voices. So, for example, the the product in Spanish has a mix of Spanish from Spain voices as well as Latin American and oh, Caribbean perfect. Spanish so that, you know, kids from all of those places can kind of relate to the the tenor and the the tone of, of those um, those different voices. So we can do that very quickly. Then we take that test with um, have it filtered by native speakers who are adults first and then test it with kids. That whole process can be done, you know, in a few weeks to a month. Um, the tech piece of it can be done within 24 hours. Um, but then making sure that we get, you know, the right level of native speakers, the right, um, the right number of kids who are native speakers as well. Um, you know, and there we draw on, on a friends and family and favors to, to draw from international communities um, and hospitals too, because the hospitals have been really helpful in, in helping us get that done. So, you know, that's, that was something that we kind of paused on, spent a lot of time thinking about what's the best way to do this so that eventually we can democratize care to kids all over the world um, and build that in from the, from the very beginning. You, you also mentioned, you know, having venture capitalists and, and what makes this attractive to them. One thing that we've heard repeatedly, almost as a knee jerk is, oh, pediatrics is niche. Um, which, you know, as a pediatric founder, I, I also have a knee jerk to that. (laughs) You know, kids are 25. As you might imagine, um, kids are 25% of our population. They're 100% of our future. No one would ever call the other side of the spectrum. So work in digital health for Alzheimer's or for Parkinson's, no one would call that niche. But yet kids are niche. Um, and I think that's that's an unfair starting point, um, particularly when we think about pain and how widespread pain is across all parts of the world. Um, you know, and, and this is, this is, you know, as I said earlier, this is a big number of children that are, that are affected, you know, 400 million children is not something I would consider small, especially when you think about what is, uh, available to them. If there's, there's nothing available to them, um, you know, this makes it an, uh, from a, a venture capital perspective, a little bit of, um, of, of blue ocean, because there's, there's not a tremendous amount of competition in this space. Parents are willing to do what it takes to get their child access when, when they're, when that access, when they're able to get that access. And when they're not able to get that access, then we have the NED Foundation or the Buy One, Share One program to make sure that, that kids get it. Francesca, it's been an absolute pleasure. It, a, a true delight, genuinely, to, to hear what you're doing. I think there's, there's a few things that have really kind of struck me today. I think you're one of the most informed digital health founders I think we've had in terms of your uh, breadth of experience across the system and your knowledge of uh, digital health, digitization, pharma, venture capital, private equity, etc. Um, but I think what that's brought is there's a long-term approach here to the way you've structured everything 
you've thought very deeply about buying decisions clearly. You know there's an emotional component to buying decisions. You have structured the company. I'm not saying that you've done a foundational rest of it with that in mind, but of course we're in a world now where people want people make their own buying decisions around values we care about what companies are trying to do we care about who the shareholders are and where the dividends go and what the, we know patagonia is doing well because of everything we these things matter you know and actually i like that because it means that yeah. people with good intentions don't need to second guess these maneuvers anymore and actually people like yourself can lean into those things and where it feels like the right thing, actually there's also business reason behind it now. So it's less of a reason to do it disingenuously. It's more of a reason to do it when it does feel genuine and to do it unapologetically, which I think is really nice. And I know Jess and I have had similar conversations about things that we want to do, which feel right, which is really nice. Um, But I think you're doing some really great things for some kids that are going to have their pain journeys significantly eased and that is only a good thing for the world so i wish you all the best um i'm sure we will speak um between now and all of your impact being made um but very best with the launch and um yeah let us know what we can do to support that because we can uh, of course do a lot for you on that as well thanks so much james it's been such a pleasure chatting with you and thanks for having me on Hey everyone, thanks for listening and making it all the way to the end of this episode. Remember to subscribe, rate us and leave a review. And you can head to the description of this episode to follow me on all of my social media so you don't miss out on any of the latest health tech content.